Okay, we come to our last study of the night, and we have been studying out of the minor prophets. We've looked at some of those very famous ones that you've all heard of before, all right? But we learned some pretty good things. And now we come to the book of Malachi, which is the last one in the Old Testament. <coughs> book of Malachi, and we're going to do chapters 3 and 4. And we have the same idea here that we have all through the prophets. <coughs> we explained it as looking at mountain peaks. And the prophet, when he looks over into the future, he sees an event here, and then he sees another event right there, and he can't tell how far apart those events are. And he just looks into the future and sees... Well, this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, and there may be quite a difference between those, what he's looking at. And we see that again here, that we'll see him looking into his future, even looking into our future, and uh, he's looking across the mountain peaks at what God's got planned. And so uh, a lot of his prophecy in Malachi uh, will apply directly to the time of Jesus. Jesus, as I've told you before, all the light of Scripture shines on the head of Jesus. Uh, everything that we need to learn is, is about Jesus. And so uh, he's going to talk about Jesus. Last week we did Zechariah, who told us all sorts of amazing things about what would happen to Jesus. And Zechariah has a long list. We're going to look at Malachi. He's different. He's not the same uh, as other people. But uh, we look at the future for him when Jesus comes. And we also are interested in his principles uh, that he talks about. And I got to tell you, there's a passage here that scares me to death. And I'm not exaggerating. When I read this, sometimes there's a chill that goes up and down my spine. And uh, it is a chilling passage for me. And um, this Malachi captures an attitude that is really prevalent in Jewish history. It is this bad attitude that he addresses. And we're going to see just how right he is with this bad attitude. He's the last Old Testament prophet to write. All right, so <clears throat> we see uh, Zechariah and Haggai are two prophets that come when they rebuild Jerusalem. And they're towards the end, almost at the end. And that's about another hundred years, and Malachi comes along, and he's the last one. And what's interesting about it, in my mind, is that uh, after Malachi speaks, there is silence. And it's a deadly silence. There's a silence coming from God, and it lasts 400 years. 400 years of silence. 
And so Malachi finishes what he'll tell us. And then for 400 years, nobody will hear a word from God. Nobody will hear. Nobody will say anything. There will be no prophets. Nothing. Until we turn the page, Jesus is there. He comes. All right. So Malachi is the last one. It's 400 years in the future what he's seeing and again, it has this remarkable thing. But what I'm interested in capturing first is this bad attitude that, that uh, is, he says it really well. In chapter 2 now, we're going to do chapter 3. We're going to go chapter 2, verse 17. And here we've got this bad attitude. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? Boy, if you ever saw a day like that today, that's what we're talking about. Where they say, we can do what we want. You know, we can do, we can call evil good. We can say whatever we want. We can do whatever we want. Because, after all, where's God? Where's God? I don't see God. God's not stopping us. God's not doing anything. We're here. We can do what we want to do. We can pick up whatever we want to do and do it. And, and he says, everyone that doeth evil is good. And we declare everyone that does what they want to do, if you think it's evil, it's not. It's good. It must be good in the sight of God because he's not doing anything. He's just out there. He's nowhere. And so that's the attitude that prevailed in Israel going through that 400 years. It ripened to the point where when Jesus comes on the scene, it is full-blown. It is full-blown. There's an arrogance that's totally in charge uh, when Jesus arrives on the scene. And we see it in the temple. That's where we find it. Where we have the ruling party are the Sadducees. Sadducees are the ruling party. And that means the people in charge at the temple were not Pharisees, although they were part of the group there. But the people who actually ran the temple were Sadducees. And Sadducees were people who didn't believe that there was life after death. He said, how can anybody be the religious leader of Israel and not believe in life after death? You know, that's the point. How could that happen? And the main character that shows up is a guy by the name of Annas. And he has a family. He's got seven sons and, and, uh, and uh, sons-in-laws, seven sons and seven sons-in-laws, and they become the high priests for years. And the way they get to be high priests is they bribe the Romans. And the Romans say, well, we're going to have a little control over what you do. And so we'll decide who's high priest. And Annas would say, okay, here's my son. How much do you need? And he paid off the Romans. And they rubber stamped whatever Annas did because he was paying them off. He paid them off big time. All right, and the Romans are happy. <laughs> you, 
Romans come, they want two things, all right? They want money and they want power in their hands so that the money flow doesn't stop. And so the people in charge of the temple are Sadducees and the one who we remember the best is Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, of course, is the one who said, we gotta kill this Jesus. If we don't kill him, we'll lose our place, which means the place he held with the Romans. Romans were propping them up with power and backing them up. And so he says, if we don't kill Jesus, we'll lose our place and we'll lose the nation. Or in other words, we'll, we won't be in charge anymore. That's what the temple was. And in order to fund their opportunities that they were taking, they started something called the marketplace. And, and in the marketplace was right in the temple. And market right in the temple. And you needed to sacrifice a lamb, you go and buy one from them. If you needed to sacrifice a goat, you could buy it there. Pigeons, you could buy it there. And you also have to pay your temple tax. They won't take it in Greek currency or in Roman currency, which is the main currencies. They want it in shekels, which is Jewish, old Jewish currency that people didn't use anymore. And so you had to go in and take your Greek money, your Roman money, turn it in to the money changers, and they shortchange you every time. And so their pockets are filling with money. They are absolutely rolling in the dough. That's who's in charge of the spiritual house of God. What do they say? We can do wrong. Where's God? Where's God? God's not stopping us. Must be approving us. That's what he says here. He says, wherein have you wearied him? God says, I'm tired of you. Why? He says, everyone that does evil is good. And where's the God of judgment? You don't see him stopping us. And so that attitude that Malachi expresses here in chapter 2 you're going to build up and build up and build up until we get to, <coughs> to the time of Jesus. And that's who's in charge of spiritual place called the temple. And you never would have believed it unless you'd seen it. But it was very gradual. It came very gradually. Changes came gradually. And there we are. But Malachi says... You want to know where the God of judgment is? Come on, I'll show you. Chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And so we know that the messenger that sent to announce Jesus is John the Baptist. We know that that happened. And he says there's going to be somebody who's going to be telling you He's coming. He's coming. That's exactly what John the Baptist says. They said, are you the Messiah? And he said, no. But he's coming. He's coming. He's almost here. Kingdom of God, he says, is at hand. It's almost here. And so Malachi says, you first you'll get a messenger. And then, here's what he said, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. I love that phrase. That's an exciting phrase. The word suddenly often applies to God. Uh, when, when Jesus was born, we see these shepherds out in the field, 
There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon, the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy to be unto all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The next word, and suddenly, suddenly, what? Suddenly, one angel having a chat with his shepherds turns into a multitude of hosts. A host is an army. What's a multitude of hosts? That's a lot of angels. Just thousands of them in the sky and suddenly, whoo, there they are. <laughs> God came suddenly. God came suddenly. And eight days later, Mary and Joseph walk into the temple carrying a little baby Jesus so he could be circumcised according to Jewish law on the eighth day. And suddenly, Simeon says, there he is. And he grabs the little baby, holds him in his arms and says, thank God you told me I wouldn't die before he came. And he's here. All of a sudden, one day, there he is. Suddenly, he comes to the temple. And at the age of 12, happens again. Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem, take Jesus. He's 12 years old. He disappears. Where is he? He's answering questions with the doctors in the temple. And suddenly they have a 12-year-old boy who knows more than they do. And they're marveling at his questions and answers as he's t they're talking with a 12-year-old boy. Now, I know a few 12-year-olds. All right? I love them, but they're usually not like that, okay? <laughs> Jesus comes in. Suddenly, there's a man, the young man with the answers. But the most uh, amazing suddenly was 18 years after that appearance, when he's 30 years old, he walks into the temple, and there he is all of a sudden with a whip in his hand. And what's he after? That right there. That stuff there where they say, we can do what we want. We can do what we want. God never says anything. We'll do what we want. He walked in with a whip in his hand and with just one little group of cords in his hand, he cleared the entire temple by himself. And what did they say? The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. And what did he say? He said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. And so he suddenly came and he suddenly came and he suddenly came. And all of a sudden there he is with a whip and he clears the place out. And what happens? They can't do anything. One guy with a whip, clears the place out, flips the money tables, changes upside down. Don't think he kind of walked calmly through, said, come on now, sheepy, get out of the way. No, 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 no. He's like, I'm clearing this place. Flip the tables upside down, and you can imagine there's money all over the ground, and he just turned that place upside down with a whip, and nobody could do a thing. Because the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And so 
Malachi says, huh? you got this attitude, huh? Where's God? Where's God? He, let me show you. He's coming. Watch this. And he suddenly arrives at the temple. <clears throat> Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. He's the messenger of a covenant. That is, there's a new agreement that he is making, all right? <clears throat> And if you look over a few pages to John chapter 3, we have this <coughs> description that Jesus made in John chapter 3. And this is really one of the best statements of the covenant. Now, you know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. But John 3.17 is one we want to look at. John 3.17, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. All right, so... He's coming as a messenger of the covenant. I'm here to help. I didn't come here to condemn people. I didn't come here to uh, put you all down. I'm coming here to help you and to save you. And so uh, he says he's coming. He's coming. You're going to see him suddenly. You have a warning first, John the Baptist. And he's going to arrive and he's got a message for us that's a good message. You're going to delight in what he says. He didn't come here to condemn us. He comes here to save us. Now, we come to the next part that absolutely terrifies me. And the Handel's Messiah, <coughs> written by Handel, of course, uh, we know the Hallelujah Chorus is the most famous one, but uh, they took scripture from all through the Bible that captured the idea of God coming into the world and coming to save the world, being born and then being crucified and then resurrected in the Messiah. And this verse is in the Messiah. And the genius of Handel when he wrote it, uh, who may abide, verse 2, who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and Malachi says, look, when he comes, you think you're going to tell him? Think you're going to stand against him? Oh, you're not. Nobody can stand when he comes. He has something on his mind, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. All right, so he's coming to clean up the mess. Right, he's a mess. And so he's focusing on, <coughs> let's read it. Verse 3, he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering of righteousness. And when Handel wrote that in such a dark tone, man, it's chilling. And when I hear it, oh, they just captured it so well in the music. Who shall abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. Here he comes. And who's he after? The sons of Levi. The sons of Levi. He's going to 
purify the sons of Levi. Those are ministers. All right, spiritually, people who are spiritually in charge. He's coming to purify people like me. I'm on the list. He's coming, and he's like a refiner's fire, and he says he has a purpose. Verse 3, she'll sit as a refiner, purifier of silver. She'll purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. Why? That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. What have they been doing over here? Anything but that. They haven't been offering an offering of righteousness. Theirs is all based on greed and power and political ideas. That's all that is anymore over there. He's coming, he says, and he has three groups in his mind. The first group is the people in charge. He's going after the people in charge. He will not tolerate them. He wants an offering in righteousness. And that's chilling to me because <clears throat> to do an offering in righteousness means I have to faithfully do what I need to do. And uh, if I wasn't faithful, then you're not, he's going to purify, burn, and burn. So that was his intention here to clean up the mess, but it extends in down, the principle of it extends to the future. When God comes, the person in charge is the one he's going after first. Don't think he's not, and I know he is. I know he's coming for me first, because he expects from me what he wants, an offering in righteousness. So when I get up and stand up here to talk, or up there to talk, Man, I better have it together. I better have it together. I better witness against the worldly doctrines that are creeping into the church. Things that are accepted outside the church. And that's what they're saying. Everyone doeth evil is good. It's okay. No, it's not okay. And we have to stand against it. And I got to stand against it. I got to make sure that I do. And... Uh, so in order for me to offer a right, offering a righteousness, I have to constantly go to God, constantly ask for his help, constantly say to him, I'm sorry, constantly hope that he will reveal to me what he wants me to do and what he wants me to say. And that has to be a regular thing because there's right there, he's going to burn you with fire and get you straight. And get it right. And so when people say, I want to be a minister, eh, you better think twice about it. You better think a half a dozen times about it. All right? A lot of people started and couldn't finish what they started because it was more than they thought. And so this is a chilling verse to me. Uh, who can abide? You think you're going to stand up and say, look at me, I can handle it. Don't, don't bet on it. When that guy comes and he's looking in through you, it's a chilling thing. And I listen to that regularly as Christmas comes over and over and over again. And every time I listen to it, it's just... Oh. So the responsibility 
for what was happening first laid with the leadership. They made that happen. They were part of that. And Malachi says, oh, you got this attitude, so where's God? Let me tell you, he's coming. And he's not going to be just looking over and saying, oh, you're okay. He's not going to do that at all. He's coming to clean up the mess and straighten it out. And so, <clears throat> verse 4, Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you to judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against adulterers, against false swearers, against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. The only reason that I don't destroy you completely is because I'm faithful to try to help you. All right, but when you're going to bring into the church the kind of things that you're doing, and they were stealing houses from widows. I've explained that before to you. How these people were stealing houses from widows and, and putting orphans out in the street and doing things like that and saying, well, it's a gift to God. And they're not a gift to God. They were doing the wrong thing. And Jesus came up against them. And he says, against adulterers who want to come in the temple, change it over to their way, against people who have things to say that aren't true. So it's a very serious charge that he makes against the Jewish leadership and against all leaders. All leaders are in that category. And uh, I remember the day there was a big wrestling match in my mind. And people said, well, we want to had a Bible study in my house. We want to have a church. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to do that. I'm not sure I want to do that. I don't know if I want to do that. Because I'd known a lot of ministers that were treated very poorly. And uh, I thought to myself, my goodness, I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. And then God said, well, are you going to do it or not? And I was loading my wood stove. I picked up a piece of wood and I tossed it in. And right there by the wood stove, I said, yep, I'll do it. That was it. From that day on, all right, made a decision. But then I understand that you better produce, all right, you better offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That is, you better have done your work, you better have worked hard and done what you need to do in order to be the leader that God wants. What he wants is that the offering will be pleasant to the Lord. God wants to look down and approve on how our services are, how they're run, and what we do. And he wants to do that. And so, uh, and Peter writes in his letter, uh, you better believe that when judgment comes, it's going to start in the house of God. When God comes, he's going to say, here, we're going to start right here with you. You're it. You're first. So, that's uh, a chilling passage. And he's warning these people of this bad attitude. He's coming. He's going to surprise you 
when he comes and you think you're going to stand against them. You're not. And they thought that they had put him on the cross and done away with him. And they were mocking him on the cross. And then all of a sudden, suddenly, it's 12 noon and the place turns dark like night. And it says they went home beating their chests. Because that's a symbol that this is not good. We thought we had him and he was going to die up there. We were going to flap our wings and say, there, we showed you. And then all of a sudden the sun went away. Now what do we do? And he said they went home beating their chests. That's a symbol of fear and of a terrible foreboding of what was coming. And you know what was coming. <laughs> All right, let's go on now because he has another group of people. He's got three groups that he's going to talk about. First, the Jewish leaders, and we've looked at that. Now let's begin with verse 6 again. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your father, you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. And you said, wherein shall we return? <laughs> so God comes, and he says to the next group of people, and uh, uh, we would call this group, the first group of ministers, these are people who wandered off. People who wander off sort of a way that we can say it. And so God says, return to me. He said, what do you mean return? We didn't do anything. What do you mean return? Return to you. We didn't do anything. Wherein shall we return? What are we supposed to do to fix what's wrong if we didn't do anything wrong? That's their attitude. And that's that same bad attitude that he mentioned first. And now God says, I'm inviting you back. I'm the messenger of a covenant where we're going to offer forgiveness. I'm inviting you back. They said, but in order for us to come back, we had to do something wrong. He didn't do nothing wrong. That's their attitude. Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? <laughs> so he says, to them, okay, you robbed me. You robbed from me. You stole from me. I said, we didn't steal anything that belonged to you. And he says, in tithes and in offerings. You're cursed with a curse. You have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there might be meat in my house. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven, pour out you a blessing, there shall be not be room enough to receive it. Right, so he says, you've been stealing from me tithes and offerings. You've been stealing tithes and offerings. Now, I've heard a lot of ministers use that passage. <laughs> I promised when I started this 34 years ago that I would never talk about money. And I've kept that promise. When we come to this passage, and there it is. It says, you've been robbing me. You've been taking the things that belong to me 
and bring the tithes and offerings into the storehouse. And so what does he mean? Well, is he saying everybody needs to tithe their 10%? Not exactly. Uh, when he's talking to these people, bring me tithes and offerings. Or what are they bringing? Sheep. A lot of sheep, lambs mostly. I mean, you know, in, in a Passover week, like we read when Christ died at Passover week, uh, they, might, uh, they might kill 100,000 lambs. It wasn't, that wasn't a large number uh, for the people that had gathered there. And so they bring in the tithes and the offerings. What's the offering? Well, it's the lamb. I mean, you bring a lamb for your sin, okay, and that, offer that. But you can also bring a lamb for thanksgiving. God had a whole set of uh, sacrifices that were for the giving of thanks. And he says, you should be bringing those as gifts to me. And what, why did he need it? Because that's what kept the priests alive. When you took a sheep in and then offered it for Thanksgiving, they'd put it in and then they'd take a meat hook and uh, the priest would reach on the animal and yank off what he came out with a meat hook and that was his for his family. Right, so if they're boiling lambs in a pot, he has the right to take a meat hook, rip off a leg or whatever he gets when he rips it off, and that belongs to him. And that's how they were supplied with food. And he said, I want meat in my house. So he says, if you'll give what you have, if you give what you have, he said, uh, then I'll open up, first of all, I'll open up the windows of heaven, and I'll just start throwing stuff out. And you'll say, wow, I can't hold it all. Can't hold it all. He says, if you give me what you want, verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. You shall your vine cast your fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed. You shall be delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, where have we spoken uh, so much against thee? They say it again. Well, we never, we never said that. We don't do that. And so how does that apply to us today? Well, in the Old Testament, the people who served were in the house of Levi. Okay. And so, if you're in the temple, you want to work in the temple, you got to be a Levite. Other people aren't allowed to serve in there. And so, there's 11 other tribes that can't serve in the temple. Only one tribe is in there, and they can serve there. Now, when Jesus came along with the church, he set it up entirely different. Church is made entirely different. The church is not one family in charge. All right? The church is a group of people, and anybody participates. Anybody. And so you have what that you can give? Well, you have uh, time that you can give to God. That counts. To me, time is much more important than money. I got a whole lot less time. I don't need a lot of money, but I got a whole lot less time 
than I could use. All right, we got time is very precious to me. So you're going to give it to God. That's okay. That's what he'll take. See, so in the church, anybody can play a part. Anybody can cook in the kitchen. There's the list of turkeys. You can cook in the kitchen. Anybody can mow the lawn, and anybody can fix the building, and people can go over and help the children and teach the children. Some of us can sing. Some of us can play music. We can do all different kinds of things. And, And matter of fact, God said that in the church, I'll give everybody something to do. Everybody has something to do. And some people say, well, I don't know. I just don't know what to do. I'm going to tell you something that I think the best gift that, uh, of the things that God gave us here, the best gift was a little lady who sat right there. Her name was Hazel. She sat in that pew right there. Uh, she was born with a handicap, so when she walked, she walked like that. Uh, when she talked, her voice was slurred. Her language was slurred. And uh, she was a tiny little thing. And when we were here working at the church and we had a lot of work to do, she said, I want to help. And I said, Hazel, I don't know what you can do. She said, I can clean the refrigerator. I said, okay, you come and you clean the refrigerator. And she came and cleaned the refrigerator. She wanted to do something. But what she really did, what she really did was she gave prayer to the church. And she told me, you used to drive to work every day and go by my house at 7.30. Every night you came by at 5.30. And every time you drove by, I was sitting on the porch praying for you for years. She said, I prayed for you when you went to work. I prayed for you when you came home. And she had more faith than any, almost anybody I ever knew. And I used to pick her up and take her to a Bible study. And we were at a Bible study in Waterport together. And on my way home was a howling blizzard. And I got down in the swamp and my car died. And I got her. I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? So I said, Hazel, I got to run back and uh, to the nearest house, which is quite, quite a ways away. And I said, I'm going to have to run back and make a phone call, see if we can get some help. You go ahead. I'm fine. So I ran like crazy, called my neighbor. He said, I'll be over. And uh, I went back to the car. And we got in there, howling blizzard. And she's happy as can be. She says to me, when you start the church, I'm going to be with you. I said, I'm not going to start a church. She said, when you do, I'll be there. And she was. She was there. And uh, she was a wonderful thing. She gave me more than any. Who, uh, who else ever did that for me? I don't think my parents did that for me. They prayed for me, but not like she did. Not like she did. See, in the church, God has made it so that you can all participate in some way, somehow. There's something for you to do. 
We all have a thing to do. We can give our time. We can give our talents. We can give our money. So he says, what's wrong with you? You robbed me. You robbed me. And I think the thought of it is, is that uh, if you do something for God, keep doing it. Don't withdraw. Don't back off. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Now, you know, I realize, because I used to run around like a crazy man, do everything I could, and I can't quite do that anymore. <laughs> I get it, all right? We get older, we can't do what we used to do. But uh, I always think of my father said, we will never surrender. We will never surrender. All right. We are going to serve God in some capacity, whatever we can, whatever way we can. And we never wanted to be able to, God to say to us, you robbed me. You had something you could do and you robbed me. You had something to give and you robbed me. You took away. And the church has this wonderful, much better system than that. In the Old Testament, it was a very limited system where only the Levites could serve. Now, we can all serve. In some way, somehow, whether you're running a vacuum cleaner, washing a dish, or what, picking a flower, you can serve some way, somehow. And so he says, that attitude, which is, eh, it's all right. We don't have to keep going. He said, yes, you do. I'm watching, he said. And I said, will a man rob God? And he said, we didn't rob you. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. All right. And so that's the second group of people that he talks to who embrace this attitude. When God says, you robbed me. What are you talking about? We never did that. And then finally, uh, verse 13, your words have been stout against me, say the Lord. You say, and what have we spoken much against thee? We didn't say anything bad. No, they only what? Went in the back room and conspired to murder him. <laughs> yeah, they went in the back room and they held meetings on how we can kill him. And they said, we can't kill him this week because there's too many people in town. That was their conclusion on the week that Jesus died. And they were holding with that conclusion. We're going to have to wait to kill him after this as the people go home until who showed up? Judas. Judas Iscariot showed up. Hey, now we got a way to kill him. We're all set. So these guys, nasty. Now, verse 14, you have said it's vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance or that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now you call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yeah, even they that tempt God are even delivered. He said, uh, if you're proud, you say, that's good. Be as arrogant as you want and be happy. All right? We didn't do anything about God. What profit? Anyway, they said, why, why bother? Why serve God? That was their attitude. Why do you want to serve God? Why bother? Why shouldn't we? Now, you're starting to think, man, this stuff is a lot. 
Here comes the good one. Ready? Here we go. Verse 16. The third group. They that feared the Lord. Now there's a third group he's going to address because he knows there are people who fear the Lord, who serve the Lord, who love the Lord. Let's see what they did. Verse 16. They that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. Uh, And there were people who were doing that. They were getting together, thinking about God, talking about God. Who were they? Mary and Joseph. And Elizabeth and Zacharias, parents of John the Baptist, they were thinking about God. Simeon, right, and Anna in the temple. There were people who were getting together and talking. And Anna, it says, spread it around. We saw Messiah, a little baby, came in, eight days old. We saw him today. He's the Lord's Messiah. And they talked among themselves, those who believe. That's exactly what we do here on Tuesday night. They that fear the Lord spoke among themselves. Talk. All right? That's exactly what he's saying. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my jewels. We sing the song. Children are the jewels. People are the jewels too. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall he return, discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. He said, I'm watching and I'm listening. And and farther than that, not only is he watching and is he listening, but he says, I'm keeping a record. A book of remembrance was written before him. God's got everything on record. We say, well, we can go on our website and hear this again. Ha! He's got, he's been way ahead of us, all right? He's been recording the things we've been saying since the beginning of time. And he's keeping track of people who know him and love him and who talk about him. And he's making a record of it. And someday when we go to heaven, he says, here's what you did. I was watching. I was listening. I was there watching. I was listening to you. And I actually recorded it. And even our prayers, I say, they go up to heaven and they're gathered together in a bottle and he saves them, saving our prayers. All right? So if you say, I don't think God's paying any attention, you couldn't be more wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. And they think, God's not helping. God's not, he's watching, he's listening. He's there constantly. And when people love the Lord and they think about him and they share that message together, he's watching, paying attention, writing it down. That's why I have to be so careful to make an offering in righteousness. He's writing it down. <laughs> I can't go up someday and say, well, I don't remember that. He said, I do. I got it. It's right here. Page 10. You said this. <laughs> Better be right. Okay, I'm trying. Here we go. Now, <clears throat> how's it all going to work out? You got these people who are arrogant. There's no value in serving God. We quit. We'll take whatever we can for ourselves. I mean, it's a tremendous 
bad attitude through Israel and focused in the temple. All right, so here we come. Here's what's going to happen, chapter 4. Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. The day cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. If you want to argue against God, if you want to do it your own way, that's where you're going. There's going to be nothing left, neither a root or a branch, nothing that's all gone. What you did turns into wood, hay, stubble, burned, and gone. Right? If you want to be that kind of attitude, why, is it, why do we bother serving God? But if you want to be one of those people that talk about the Lord and God's recording, here is a wonderful, wonderful verse. Verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. You shall tread down the wicked. They shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do it, saith the Lord of hosts. So here's what's for you. And this is into our future for us today, into our future. The son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. He said, well, Jesus came, he was a healer. Well, there's a lot more than that there, okay? And he says, the son of righteousness is going to come. Or shining on you is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's arising. Right? The resurrected Christ arises and he says, I'm here for you. And I think that the most exciting part is they shall grow up, uh, go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Now, some of you have never been around cows. You know what that's all about. But when you take a cow, he's in a barn for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then you turn him loose in the spring. Even some old, old bag of a cow will get out there and kick up her heels. And the young ones will just flip up and jump up and down and have a ball. Let me out of this stall. Here I go. I'm happy and jumping around. And when you watch cows do that, that's pretty cool. I remember with Uncle Ed, we were watching the cows and... We shook our heads and said, look at that one. Look at that one. Jump, jump up in the air, kick their feet, happy. <clears throat> and I think he's talking about us. Because I've seen people die who believe. And boy, they're kicking their heels up. I'll tell you what. They're glad to be free. They're glad to be free. They're glad to kick up their heels. When my great-grandmother's name was Uline, died in Norway. She was laying in the bed, and my grandmother was with her. And all of a sudden, she said, I see a light outside the window. And then she died, just like that. And she kicked up her heels and went, huh? She saw the light, saw them coming. I don't know what she saw. Nobody else saw it in the room. But she saw the light, and I've heard of that happening and uh, seen that kind of behavior. They're glad to go. Let's go. Let's go. I remember uh, the lady used to come and sit right there. What was her name? She had cancer. She was dying in the... 
Muriel. Muriel Daniels. Muriel Daniels. She had a terrible cancer, incredible pain. And I went to see her in the place where she was, and she'd just be, oh, it hurt so much. And she was saying something, just almost when she died, she was saying something. And her daughter was there, she said, I don't know what she says. And I got my ear right down by her mouth that close. And she was saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> like a calf in a stall. Let me go. I'm going. Let's get out of here. The Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in his wings. I'm okay. And I'm going to be free. And she said, Jesus, Jesus. Do you understand what you've been given? Do you understand what you've been given? The Son of Righteousness is rising with healing and wing, and you're going to kick up your heels, and you're going to die with class. You're going to die in style. You're not going to go out all afraid and humble. You're, you're going to believe in it. Let's go. I'll do this, he says. I'll do this for you. Verse 4, remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in horror for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Right, he said, I asked you to do things. I made rules. Don't do that. Don't have that attitude. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So I'm going to send Elijah. And Elijah, of course, was John the Baptist. Same attitude, same job as Elijah, which was to restore back to Israel what God said to do. And he's going to, verse 6, turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Wonderful. You understand what God wants. He wants families that love each other. He wants families that love each other. I want to turn the hearts of fathers and children together. That's what I want to accomplish. I want to heal families. I want to make families good and strong. <clears throat> Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And that's his last saying. So he says, I'm, I'm going to send you somebody to warn you. And he's going to help you to mend your families. And to do what Moses said to do. We're going to help you to do it. And if you don't do it, then I'll smite the earth with a curse. And that's the last thing he said for 400 years. Boy, now I get your attention. Pay attention. Pay attention, he says. Because if you don't, I smite the earth with a curse. And I think he did. I think it was called a Roman Empire. Hmm. Okay, well, there's Malachi. Good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. As he tells us the attitudes that are wrong, bring it right. Work, serve the Lord. And if you do, I'll gather with you and I'll listen to you. I'll keep a record of it. And here's my promise. The son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings and set you free. And you'll kick up like a calf getting out of a stall. That's Malachi, great prophet, last one in the Old Testament. Thank you.